Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into Clojure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about ClojureScript itself with Mike Fikes, a core contributor to ClojureScript. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? Good. Good, thanks. Yeah, what about you? Pretty good. Yeah. Nice. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is the type inference that's coming to ClojureScript. You've been talking about it on Twitter a lot and showing these interesting benchmarks and tweets of how optimized this code can be when you've got better type inference. So tell me about that. What's what's kind of the, the idea behind this? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, a lot of ClojureScript developers might not be familiar with type inference because you don't largely deal with it in ClojureScript. You know, when you think about Clojure, typically you you deal with type hinting there, right? To deal with eliminating reflection, you know, in Clojure, if you have like some reflective call, you'll need to type hint to make it run faster. And in ClojureScript, you typically don't do stuff like that. So I think a lot of um, Clojure script developers may not even know <laughs> about type hinting at all. And that's probably a good thing. You know, it's like type hinting can only clutter your code if you have to do it. Mm. Um, but what it's, what it's about in ClojureScript, it's largely about ClojureScript will use types to, to try to improve the performance of the code that it generates. That's, the, that's what I would say is the primary reason or rationale for, for types being used in ClojureScript. And secondarily, they're, they're used um, sometimes to give you like warnings if you've, you've done something silly. I think that the main place where people may have encountered this, if you're a ClojureScript developer, is, is that warning that you get if you accidentally say, if you try to add a string and a number together, <laughs> that will, you know, that will actually do something in JavaScript. It'll, it'll concatenate them, I guess. But like the, all the numeric functions that are in Clojure and in ClojureScript are meant to take numbers. You're not supposed to pass strings to them. So um, where, where types will come into play in ClojureScript is if you, if you try to increment a string or something like that, uh, the compiler will issue a warning to you. Um, and that's because it can, it can see the string. You know, it can see that, that it's not a number <laughs> and it'll, it'll issue that warning. And where inference may come in, into play is if you, if you imagine a case where you, you're incrementing X, right? And if, if the compiler can figure out that X is a string, then it will also warn you in the same way, essentially. It'll say, hey, you know, I don't remember what the exact warning is, but it'll say you're not supposed to do this. Nice. So type inference has existed in the ClojureScript compiler for a long time, but you're enhancing it or extending it recently? Yeah. So about, I think it was like two years ago, I had asked about whether or not it made sense to extend type inference in a way that would make it so that you could infer the return type of functions that you're writing. And where this would be important is a lot of, um, one of the performance benefits you get from ClojureScript from types is if you have, like if you if you write some code that uses an if and the test that's in that if, if that, if the compiler can see that that test is actually a Boolean, then the JavaScript that it can emit looks a lot like you would imagine. It just, you know, says if this thing is true, then do the then branch or the else branch. If the compiler can't see that your test is a Boolean, then the compiler has to be conservative and has to do this. It has to add this extra check in your code to make sure that the value that you're passing to it isn't something that JavaScript would think is false. So like in JavaScript, the number zero can be false or the empty string can be false. So a lot of times where you'll see type hints coming into play is for predicates. People will, will type hint a predicate to say, hey, when you call this function, it returns a Boolean. There's a, like, you should never have to do this in your own code in your app, but a lot of the core predicates that are down in the standard library have these Boolean type hints on them. 
so the, so the idea there is like if if you can have the compiler figure that out on its own, like if you write a function that returns a boolean, perhaps it, maybe it does a if it does an if test, and in one branch it returns true, and the other branch it returns false, then the compiler can see that, right? It, it can tell that hey, this function can only return a boolean. So that feature, I had asked David Nolan about this a couple of years ago, like, hey, would that make sense to add to the compiler? And he said, yeah, yeah. So I wrote a patch for it, and it, it actually um, recently got put into master. Uh, so that is now in there. And that once we had that in there, and once you could say, like, hey, you can now infer the return types of functions, it started me on this, this kind of like Cambrian explosion of thinking about other things that you could do with types now. Like, oh, wow, you know, now that you can see this, it was like... A, Type hinting or type inference has always been in there and it's the compiler's been able to figure out like, hey, if you let a local variable, the type the compiler can flow the type down to the place where it's used. And this was just a new direction, a new dimension that it could go in. It, it can now see the types of functions that you're calling. So that kind of like once we had that in there, all of a sudden my the gears in my mind started spinning. I'm like, hey, what else can we do with types now? You know? Um, so that's that's roughly what I've been doing the past month or so, is just digging into different places and ways that we can extend type inference. So let's see. So all this stuff is that I've been doing recently is all just kind of like either in flight, you know, they're patches in Jira or they're, they're just experiments still that I'm working on. One of them, or, or, or I guess one part of what is worth talking about is like how you can actually use type hints to, to make your code faster. Yeah. And one of the core ideas there is unlike enclosure, enclosure script, you can actually have a macro and a function that have the same name. And where that is used for is all the numeric functions, plus and minus and stuff like that. Those are, they are functions, but they're also macros. And where the compiler, the, the reason it does that is because when you, when you call the plus function, it actually will, it'll, it'll prefer to use the macro instead. And it'll expand that macro. Uh, and what you get is Essentially, in the end, you get JavaScript. You know, like the, the macro expands out into some special, uh, a, a special that will actually generate JavaScript for you. So, if the closure script compiler, you know, it can statically determine this is a plus being used, then it can use the macro form. But if you were trying to pass the plus to, say, a reduce function, then it would need to use the the function version. Is that is that correct? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Like in the higher order cases where you're passing plus into another higher order function like map or reduce, then it has to use the function. Exactly. But in that, in that case where you literally are calling plus on some stuff right in your code, then it's when it's on the plus is an operator position right there, then the compiler can say, hey, this can be used as a macro. Nice. And, and the, the, where that comes into type-based stuff is during macro expansion, the compiler, you know, in, in closure script, the macros are actually in closure. Yeah. So during macro expansion... At that point, the, those, those core macros like plus, they actually, they can look at the types of stuff that are being passed to them, or they can call on the closure script compiler is broken up into a couple of parts. One part is called the analyzer and the other part's called the compiler. So during macro expansion, which is all done in the analyzer, the macro itself can call back on the analyzer and ask questions. Like it can say, Hey, what is the type of this thing that I'm expanding right now? You know, what is, what is the type of the form? You know, that, that's the first argument to this macro. And that's, that's largely how these, a lot of this stuff works with the plus. Um, that's how it, you know, it can kind of get in there and it can say, oh, okay, you're doing something that is incorrect. Like you're passing a string to plus. So the, the fa- basically the, the reason for explaining all this is that the fact that you can have macros kind of gives you one place where you can hook in some of this cool stuff and you can check stuff statically because that's what macros kind of are. You know, you can check the types of things. So one, one cool thing you could think about is if you had 
the str function. The sh- I don't know how you even say that out loud. The str function, <laughs> the string function. <laughs> I've never said it. I don't think, but but that function. What would you call it? <laughs> I, I would say str or stir maybe. Yeah, that's what I would say. The str <laughs> the str function. <laughs> but that one, um, that one also is a macro because it's got the same things. Like if you call string or str on a bunch of things that you pass to it. Uh, it can expand out into this nicely optimal code that that's involves JavaScript that uh, it builds an array and then it joins them together, um, whatever it's doing, you know. But the main point is, um, if you if you think about what if you call str on a string on a literal string, which is kind of silly to do, but if you call str on like the string ABC, in that case you're you're like trying to coerce a string to a string, and and you can imagine it's it would be easy. You can imagine like writing your own macro without even knowing anything about how the compiler works. During macro expansion, you can say, is this, is the form being passed a string? You know, you could use the string question mark. Yeah. And during macro expansion, you can say, oh, if that's the case, then I'm just returning the string, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's, so that's probably like the simplest example that would like illustrate like how you can do things with knowledge of types of stuff to generate faster code. Because then, then what you get is literally the string after expansion's done and, you know, it's order zero algorithm, whatever that is, you know, if, if you imagine like, what if you didn't know what if it wasn't actually a string uh, at compile time? Because that's, you know, that's kind of silly. Well, I guess it's not silly because a lot of times you call str when you're building up a message to go into some UI or something like that. You might have literal strings interspersed with variables, right? With your values. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff, like there is an optimization that's already in ClojureScript where it says, hey, for those values that you're passing in, there's no need to convert them to strings. I'm sorry, for the for the things that are strings that you're passing in, there's no need to, to do an extra step to convert them to strings. Right. The compiler used to actually call str on all the things that you had passed to it to convert them to strings and then concatenate them all. Right. You really only need to convert like numbers and other things to actual strings. And that's to go from the closure script representation of that string, of that value into a string. Yeah. So if you have like the number uh, 17, it will it'll basically turn that into a string, if I remember correctly, or just other values that need to be turned into strings. It'll coerce them all into strings. But one optimization is it can say, hey, if, if the thing already is a string, no need to do that. You know, just kind of like literally put it in there in the array that it's building and that it's going to spit out. So the cool thing that you can that you can do is like if you have stronger type inference in the compiler, you can go beyond just saying, is this literally a string value at compile time? You can say, is it a string type? Essentially, uh, you can say, what is the type of this expression? You know, it might be, it could be a function call, right? It could be a function that you're calling. Let's say you have uh, a function that's calling name on a keyword. I think that's one. That's an example where name will always return a string, right? Mm, yeah. So, so that's an example of where the outward type inference of functions. It can say, yeah, this, this, this function that you're calling is always going to return a string. Therefore, I don't need to coerce it to a string. I don't need to coerce the return value that it spits out to a string. I can just drop it in place. Yeah. And, and that those little things are kind of silly, but you can imagine like they really speed up the result that you get if you if you benchmark them. You're like you know sometimes twice as fast, you know, when you do little optimizations like that. Yeah, that's that's really nice. And one of the things I saw you talking about was flowing the types backwards up the stack, where if you saw something was used in a particular way, you could then infer backwards to what it has to be. Yeah, so this is kind of mind bending, at least to me, it was. Uh, so like. The way the type inference works today in the compiler is you have the types kind of flow in a certain direction that it's like you would say, let X be something like you're going to call a function or, or it's some literal. Then, then the compiler knows that X has a certain type. 
and it just kind of flows from there, from the place where you defined it all the way to the place where it's used. But what you just described, Daniel, is like the opposite. It's like you can say, well, I guess a concrete example helps explain this. If you have a function that you're writing, and in that function, you call the subs function, which calculates a substring of a string. If you look at that particular function, yeah. the first argument of subs has to be a string. You have no choice. You know, if you, I think in Clojure, it's, it's hinted to be a string. And in JavaScript, it's going to, uh, I'm sorry, in ClojureScript, it's actually going to call, it's going to convert that into like a dot substring call. Uh, regardless, the, the first argument to subs has to be a string. Yeah. If you pass anything else to it, your program is incorrect and it'll probably crash and blow up. So anyway, if, if you're writing a function that calls subs, then you know that that value is a string. And then you can infer that anywhere else that that value is being used, it's also a string. And where this could matter, this is another cool thing you can do, is if you, if you know that something is a string and you're calling count on it, enclosure and enclosure script, when you call count on a string, the, the result will be the account of the number of characters that are in that string. I guess conceptually you could think of it as treating the string like a sequence. You know, it doesn't actually turn it into a sequence. It, it gets the length of that string. Yeah. The important thing is when you call count on, a, on anything in Clojure, or at least in Clojure script, there's like a, you can imagine there's a, there's a big a con thing with a bunch of branches and it says, hey, is this thing I countable? And then it's like, okay, if it's an I countable, I'll call dash count on it. Oh, is it a is it an array? And if it's an array, I'll I'll get the a length of it and get the, the array's length. And you know, it goes down the path, and that finally hits the point where it's like, oh, this thing that you're passing to me is actually a string. You know, at runtime, and then it it gets the the length member of that string. So that's that's another example where you could imagine if at compile time you can infer that the thing that you're passing to account is actually of string type. You don't even need to call the runtime count function. You can, you can dispense with all that cond branch stuff. You can instead emit a call to get the length of that string. You can just assume that it is. So unwrapping a little bit, if you go back to the example of subs, if you have a function that calls subs on a string or subs on anything, then you can infer that that thing that you're calling subs on is a string. And then if you're also calling count on that very same thing, then you can assume that it's a string and you can call you know the length member on it. And that's that's kind of where this, this backwards inference, as you talked about, kind of is, is kind of useful, where you basically have a function that you've written, and you can look at all the uses of, of the parameters of that function, and you can deduce uh, the types of those parameters Yeah, that function, if that makes sense. Nice. And, and sometimes, I guess, you could, you could have written a function that actually has, it, you know, it has no particular type that could satisfy all that. Like, let's say you were calling subs on a value, and you were also calling ink on that same value. <laughs> and in that case, the compiler could say, hey, hold on, you know, <laughs> you, you've written a program that's that's provably incorrect. You know, you, you're you're trying to treat it as a string and a number at the same time. You know, the intersection of those two is the empty set. And there's nothing that would work. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And the, the cool thing about that parameter type inference, uh, if, you, if you go down that path, then let's say you've written a function that um, where it can infer certain parameters and then someplace else you call that function the compiler can then do a type check and it can say, hey, the, the, the actual um, arguments that you're passing to that function either match or don't match the types uh, that it's inferred. So the simplest way to think about this is when you call plus on a string today, the compiler will warn you and say, hey, you can't, you know, you can't add a string to a number. Well, with, with parameter type inference, the compiler could start to warn you about that 
same kind of thing, but for functions that you've written instead of ones that are in the core library. Right. Nice. And without having to necessarily type in them. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you might be thinking, hey, isn't that what spec's for, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, spec is all about defining the types that go into your functions. And I, I would agree. I, I would say that a lot of this stuff related to type inference is not really, its primary purpose is not to provide you with warnings about silly code that you're writing. Although it's, who would complain? Like, you know, if it tells you that your code has a problem, that's great. Yeah. But the real rationale in my mind is to, to generate more optimal code. And that's, that's, that's my opinion. You know, that's, that's why the compiler would bend through hoops to try to infer the types of things is so that it can generate more optimal code. If we didn't have spec, maybe I would, I would feel differently. You know, <laughs> I would say, yeah, give, tell me everything you can about my program to tell me that it's incorrect in places. But I think a lot of the stuff would overlap with spec. And I think spec's much more powerful with, you know, telling you, you know, a runtime or a compile time, whatever, that, that things are wrong. Yeah. Do you see any, any way that specs could be combined into this sort of type inference stuff? Or is it just too dynamic and too, too hard to, to bring into this line of type inference? I, I think for like, for simple specs, like where you're calling core predicates, where, you know, like, let's say you spec a function and in that spec, you say that the first argument must satisfy the string question mark predicate, right? Yeah. In cases like that, I think you can. And I think uh, Colin Fleming even suggested that in cursive, he was considering doing just that, looking at the specs that you've written and doing a little bit of type inference, because that's what cursive is largely about. Um, if you compare cursive to CIDR, cursive is, is largely about a lot of static analysis that it's doing. So to answer your question, yeah, I think so. Like if, if you have specs that, that indicate things, then that'd be kind of cool, right? Like your spec itself could result in your code being more optimal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, That's kind of a weird thought, you know? Like specs weren't meant to do that, but they could because they kind of hint the compiler and say, hey, you know, this thing is what it is. I wonder about that, yeah. So I think I think to answer your question is yes, definitely. <laughs> nice. So so you're doing a bunch of extra work here and that, that work presumably isn't free, might be cheap, but what, what does that kind of have impact on compile times if, if you do this type inference? Okay. Yeah. So, so I've been kind of worried about this, especially since like recently David Nolan went on this, this, uh, hunt to, to speed up the compiler. <laughs> and he, uh, we've always been trying to find ways to make the compiler faster because it's, it's pretty slow at times. But, you know, if you can ever find a way to make it faster, that's awesome. And he, for some reason, he, he started hunting for things and he found a five to 10% performance gain here. And then he kept doing that over and over again. <laughs> Until he got it up to like twice as fast as what it was previously, which is crazy. You know, it's like, but that's all it takes is you continuously find these little performance gains and then you multiply them all out. After a while, you get to the number two. Yeah. So I'm kind of worried, like at the same time, like if we add more complex type inference to things, could it slow down the compiler? I am. I'm definitely worried about that. And the way to guard against that, I guess, is to always test your patches to make sure that they aren't slowing down the compiler. The one we had talked about where you where the compiler can infer the types of parameters. That one's a challenging one because what the compiler has to do is it has to kind of make a, it has to analyze the body of a function once to see what the types are. And due to like a technical way, the way the compiler is implemented, then it has to back out and analyze it again after it knows the types. Yeah. So you end up doing like this double analysis. Maybe if you're more clever, you could come up with a way to like do that as a single pass, but you know, the code is the way it is. So it's like always a challenge to like try to write things that will pull that stuff off without slowing things down. Yeah. So, so far, I, I think uh, of all these uh, type inference patches, they, they, they can slow things down like, like maybe 2% or so. 
But if they started to slow things down like five or 10%, then I would feel compelled to like go hunt to try to figure out ways to optimize whatever it's doing. Yeah. And you typically can, you know, fortunately. So, so these type hints are helping us generate more optimal closure script code, but we also have kind of a couple more layers of optimization beyond that. One's the Google closure compiler itself with its advanced optimizations. And then there's the JavaScript VM with its JIT compilation. So how do those interact? And, and when you actually get to running the code in the browser, are you that much ahead that you would have been if you just let the, the very smart uh, JavaScript JIT VM figure it all out at runtime? Yeah. So, so I, I think a, a concrete example of that kind of stuff is, let's say you, you were looking at the subs function again. Let's say you're saying, oh, okay, I know that if you're calling the subs function, then it is a string. And you might be tempted to say, let's take the subs function and turn it into a macro then. So that it just assumes that and emits this, you know, like a JavaScript substring call. If you try to do that, what you'll find out is that, um, well, if, if you aren't using advanced compilation, then things will be faster because, you know, it's not, it's no longer calling through one function into another. And if the JavaScript VM can inline that, that's cool. But to make a long story short, if you tried to write that macro, you would find out that closure is going to inline that for you anyway. Like closure is is smart enough to figure out that particular optimization. Sure. To be honest, the only way to figure out some of this stuff is to come up with some hypothesis and test it. You know, you have to say like, well, will this make things faster or not? The example of looking at count for for strings, closure is is not smart enough to look at the implementation of count and say, oh, you know, it's going to go down this con branch. I mean, if, if closure had, you know, was, was sentient, like an AI, it could look at the implementation. It could say, yeah, <laughs> you know, it could do anything theoretically. Right. But it's just not there uh, for that particular one. So I guess to answer your question, a lot of times these things can help. Like if we can figure out some way in the closure script compiler, just to make things a little bit more optimal, then closure can take what you've produced there and go and run with it. You know, and it can do even greater things with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of give it a little, a little bit of help by generating a little bit more optimal code. And then sometimes answers are even better. I don't know if that made sense, but... Yeah, no, that, that was good. Is there any other bits in this in this type inference that we... Oh, okay. So let's see. Yeah, this, this type inference stuff is a big subject. I think we've covered most of the main ideas. I guess I would kind of summarize a lot of this stuff by saying, um, even though this stuff is cool to talk about, it's all fascinating. If, if a lot of this stuff starts to land on ClojureScript Master or, or you see it, you know, you end up having it in your compiler, that doesn't mean that you all of a sudden have to become an expert in type hinting and and understanding type inference and all that kind of stuff. The, the main point is that the code that you've written today will just start running faster and you won't have to do anything to make it run faster. And it, it, of course, it always helps as a developer to be able to like, to look under the hood and see what it's doing, you know, and, and maybe you can write code that would help inference or whatever. But I don't think you need to like do anything differently if the stuff starts to, to make its way to you as an end user, as a developer. And I think another another thought I have is imagine if we start having really strong type inference, then things become a little bit more static. Like the co- the code that gets compiled for the functions you're writing tend to start to reflect the static stuff that it inferred at the time when that code was compiled. And when you're at the REPL, you're like changing, you know, you might redefine a function. And by doing that, you might invalidate some assumptions that were that the compiler made when it was compiling. So this actually happens today, or it can happen today. There's an option in the compiler called static functions. Today, the compiler will look at a function, and let's say it's a multi-arity function, and you're calling it, maybe you're passing two arguments to that function. 
what the compiler will do if statics functions is enabled is it will it will do what's called static dispatch and it'll directly call the the two iterative version of the compiled version of that function and that's a bad thing at the REPL. If you go and change that function, then any, any of the call sites become invalid. So at the REPL, what you, what the default is, is to have the static functions compiler option, if you will, disabled. And that, that makes for slower code at the REPL, but it makes for a more dynamic experience. So what I think might happen is if we, if we get better and better at doing type inference, we might find that we get into this position where things are starting to reflect the static nature of stuff a little too much. We might have compiler options to turn some of it off, you know, because you, you might start to see that things just don't behave correctly at the REPL if you go too far with all this, right? It's exa- it's analogous to static functions. So I, I, I would imagine that we may end up seeing some of the stuff only being enabled by default when you're doing it an advanced build or a simple build. Yeah, because you, would you run into some of those problems also using, say, FigWheel, where it's incrementally recompiling? Yeah. Yep. Any of that, like that whole dynamic environment kind of thing. You want it to behave more like Lisp, you know, <laughs> you just want it to all be very dynamic. And, and, and a lot of the stuff we've been talking about with type inference is really largely about optimizing it. And that, that's only really important when you're building it to ship it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now that type inference is being extended and advanced, uh, might people start to see warnings where there were no warnings, not because there's a bug in closure script, but because there was always a bug in their code that just didn't happen to be triggered. Yeah, I think that's a good point. What you said makes me think about that feature where it infers the type of parameters. You might all of a sudden have the compiler now catch things and warn you about things that have always been wrong in your code and or maybe we're skating on thin ice or Yeah. I, I find we normally turn the closure script compiler warnings into errors because ninety nine point nine percent of the time all of those warnings are bugs in our code or things where they might not be technically bugs but we should have written it in a different way. Yeah, yeah, I do the same thing. Yeah, so I think so, yeah. With maybe more type inference, the compiler might actually catch stuff that's wrong in your code and now warn you about it, which would be cool. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you've been working on some other interesting things as well. One of the big things is the AOT cache, uh, which uh, is a little bit scary, potentially. But, but yeah, do you want to talk about, about the AOT, AOT cache for ClojureScript? Yeah, so I guess the main idea there, one way to, to kind of summarize it up at the high level is if you think about enclosure, you can, when you're building a jar, you can AOT compile all that closure down to JavaScript bytecode if you choose. And you can make a jar that has AOT artifacts in it. You know, it's pre-compiled. And the reason you do that is so that when you later use that jar, it's, it doesn't have to compile it when you, you know, you want, maybe want to reduce startup latency of your app. So the closure script compiler, so you might be compelled to do the same thing for closure script. You might want to pre-compile all of your closure script into JavaScript and put that resulting JavaScript in your jar that you're delivering for other, like, let's say you're building a library, right? And you could theoretically do that. But what the, the main problem you'd have is that the closure script compiler, it will refuse to use JavaScript that was generated by a different version of the closure script compiler. Uh, at the very top of the JavaScript, it puts the closure script version number in there mm. as a comment. And it'll see that and it'll say, yeah, I'm not going to use that because it's, you know, the closure script compiler changes from release to release. And it also, um, like if you change any of the options, like I had mentioned the static functions option or, um, there's, there's various, like you could, you could elide your asserts and that will change the generated code that you get. So any of those kind of things that affect the way your code is being built will make it so that any, any JavaScript that you are, that you have produced 
may not be eligible to be used by the compiler and it'll just kind of not use it. So the AOT cache thing basically says, oh, okay, if you want to kind of have that benefit and have your cake and eat it too, what it'll do is like if you are using a jar from uh, Clojars or, or Maven, the first time you're, the compiler compiles that code, it'll take that JavaScript that it produced at that point in time and put it in a shared cache on your computer locally. And, it, and it's smart enough to like, if, if you're using different build affecting options, it'll, it'll hash those and put the resulting JavaScript in different places in, in that cache so they don't collide with each other. And, and effectively, you get your, like I said, you get your cake and you get to eat it too. You basically have the effect of AOT uh, without, you know, the negative associated with that. Um, so I, I, I honestly, I don't even know if people are really fully aware of this feature. It's one of those kind of things where <laughs> if it works and it never breaks, no one knows about it. And, and the only way you'd really notice is like if your compilation is a little bit faster. Yeah. Is it disabled by default or is it enabled now? Yeah, it is. It is disabled by default unless you're using the new CLJS main thing. That's where it's, en- that's where it is enabled by default. Right. Um, but for, for, um, like let's say you're using Linegan to build your stuff, it's disabled. Right. And that is because unfortunately, if you have a library that has a macro that is not pure, where that macro consults the ambient environment in any way and uses that to decide what code to generate, then then your macro is is basically making your code so that it's not friendly to be cached, right? You can't cache that result because it could change. Like an example might be your, your macro is slurping something from a disk or, you know, whatever, anything impure. And because of that, because the, the closure script compiler can't really see what your macros are doing, it has to be conservative and it can't turn on the AOT cache feature by default because uh, it could potentially break your code. Maybe that's why you said it was scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and not only what you might typically think of as impure where you're calling out to the environment, but also calling into some compiler options, the, the external config, which is not really, it was never supported by ClojureScript, was it? It was just a, a clever clever hack. Is that, is that correct? I, I think that config that thing that you just mentioned is an example of that kind of, it is a kind of macro that, consults the environment and right it's exactly one of those kind of problematic macros that if you use aot caching with that thing then you could end up with maybe i think the result would be that the config for one project would affect another project that you're working on yeah 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 and that's not good <laughs> no but even places where it might not be obvious yeah like maybe calling the date yeah clearly that's going to be impure but calling compiler options seems you know at a high level like it should be fine but not. Yeah, and then you'll be scratching your head trying to figure out why your other project is building in a weird way. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think um, mostly people have moved away from that pattern now. Is that is that accurate? Oh, okay. So what you can do, yeah. So if if you want to write some things that can change in that way, uh, so that you can produce different builds based on environmental variables. <laughs> Yeah. The, the best way to do it is to use the Goog define stuff. Yeah. Closure defines stuff. And then what you're really doing is you're generating JavaScript that is itself amenable to caching because it doesn't have any of your environment variables in it. And it defers all that stuff down to the closure layer. It kind of like makes it wait until then. So the stuff that you've built that you've compiled, that's completely cacheable. Yeah. So yeah, we, we do that with reframe 10x because we've got a bunch of heavy tracing that could be turned on if you wanted it on, but we don't we don't even want the the, the checks or the, the possibility of that stuff being in, in your production build. So we use closure defines and to to make sure it all gets compiled out 
uh, very cleanly. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I wasn't even that familiar with the closure defines feature until we built this AOT cache feature. And then I, I learned it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, this is a cool feature. <laughs> so what else is new in, in closure script? So like I said, David um, has basically doubled the performance. Of the, I, I don't want to say doubled it for everyone. When I say doubled what there's this, uh, there's this coal mine corpus of code that I built up. That's like built based on foreclosure. It's got like a quarter of a million lines of code in it now. And that code base is really great for testing the performance of the compiler. But what, what happens then is if you if you compile that code using the compiler, it takes like 10 minutes to compile all of it, which is kind of ridiculously long. And what you have happen then is the compiler goes into this mode where it's nice and warmed up. You know how the JVM will like optimize itself after a while. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who are building smaller projects that compile within maybe a minute or two, you may not see a doubling. So I don't want to claim that everyone's compiles will double, you know, but if maybe if you're sitting there using fig wheel all day long and you're, you know, you keep it running, maybe things will get twice as fast. Ultimately, if you've got a quarter of a million lines of code, then yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, <laughs> then, then you definitely will see a, a good doubling of your performance. And also another thing that, that uh, is in there is if you use, there's a, there's an ability in closure script to do parallel builds which uh, will use multiple cores on your box to compile things. And the way it's worked so far is you have to have, um, it basically compiles a file at a time or, you know, that's the level of granularity is on a per namespace basis. There's now a change on master that will basically make it so that it can both analyze and compile on separate threads. So essentially if you have, if, if you have a project that has a lot of files, then parallel build can be good because, you know, there's a lot of granularity and you can spread it out across your course. But if you have a smaller project that has like a few larger files, then then parallel build may not help you as much, but maybe it will now with this change on master where it can, for each file, basically you have, you can kind of split it in half, if you will. You can think there's the analysis part that can be on one core and then the compilation part, which can be on another core. And, and what I saw by, by doing that is like for some of the smaller projects that I had, if you turn on parallel build, then things get to be about 16 to 20% faster, which is good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you find enough of those, you'll double the performance, but that's not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. And so all of these performance numbers you're talking about are within ClojureScript compiler itself. And then you've still got the, the Google Closure compiler as a, a separate pass. Yes, exactly. Yep. So there's nothing we're doing to make that part faster. And and then also to make sure you you... Like this does not mean that the actual code that you're generating is faster. It's mostly, I've been talking about the pain you feel as a developer while you're compiling your own code, mm-hmm. how long it takes the compiler to run on your code. Both kinds of perf are important, right? The perf of the compiler and also the perf of the code that it generates. So the, the stuff that I was mentioning where David doubled it, that's the, that's the perf of the compiler. It's how long it takes to compile your code base. Yeah. Nice. And so you mentioned CLJS main uh, just before. Uh, so can you give a give an explanation of, of what that is, what it's kind of trying to achieve, what the goals are? Yeah. So, so Clojure's always had this feature where you can pass various options to it. Like if you want to evaluate a form at the command line, you can pass minus E in that form. Or you can, you can start up a REPL by passing minus R or just leaving that off. It'll by default start up a REPL. So Clojure's always had all these various options that you can pass to it to to just do things at the command line. And closure script, on the other hand, has always been kind of tedious to run as a compiler. You know, you would have to write a small build CLJ file if you wanted to use the compiler directly. You'd have to kind of roll up your sleeves, write a small build CLJ file that, that would compile things for you. Most people don't do this, though. Most people would use line again 
But if you really wanted to, you would have to resort to writing a program to compile your program. <laughs> well, CLJS main basically says, ah, you know, let's, let's add all the same kind of options that you have for closure into closure script. You can, you know, at the command line now, to make a long story short, you can now just fire up a REPL <laughs> or compile something. It acts more like a compiler now. Like, you know, you can imagine like old school GCC compiler, you'd pass like minus capital O three to optimize, you know, it has like flags now that you can pass to it to tell it you want advanced or simple. You can pass minus C to compile it. Now, little, little things like that. So what it basically means is a lot of stuff that you, you used to have to resort to heavier tooling to do you now is kind of just built in for a lot of simpler projects. You could get away with just using CLGS main to build your stuff or to start up a REPL. And also I would make a shout out to Bruce. He basically made a version of all this called Figwheel main that uh, pretty much works in the same way, but you have Figwheel in the mix as well. Wow. So it's really nice, you know. I find it great. It's like one one example, this is not really the main use case, but let's say you wanted to write a defect report against the closure script compiler, right? You need to submit some sort of minimal repro to illustrate a broken aspect of the compiler. Well, previously you would have to do like I said, you'd have to provide like you'd have to <laughs> make a little program that would compile your program. Now you could just provide like here's the commands that you pass, you know, the command line option. It makes it much easier to reproduce small compilation bugs. But I, I don't think most people are using it for that. Most people are using it to actually build their projects or start up REPLs and stuff like that. But that's that's an example of how it can make things easier. Nice. Well, there's there's another cool feature coming up that um, we haven't mentioned. And master is a feature to warn you about using private VARs. Yeah. So, you know, in Clojure, if you try to use a private VAR in another namespace, it won't let you, basically. You have to do the VAR special on it, whatever you call that. I don't know. The hash. Hash. The quote, whatever. Yeah. So in Clojure script, uh, since vars were never really reified or whatever, it never, it never did stop you from calling private things. You know, <laughs> you, I don't, I mean, up until now, like what's the real point of defining things as being private in Clojure script? It doesn't, I don't even think it does anything with it today. Just documentation, really. Yeah. Just documentation. So, um, in master is a feature that will now at least emit warnings when you're doing that. So if you accidentally call a private, function, you'll now know. The compiler will emit a new warning that basically says kind of what you would expect. Like, hey, <laughs> you're calling this thing and, a, and, and it's not public. Yeah. Now, it won't stop you from calling it because that's, you know, it's not changing the semantics of how the compiler behaves. It's just a new warning. Right. And if you don't like that warning, any warning that's in the closure script compiler, you can turn it off. You know, if you have a bunch of code that's calling lots of private VARs or whatever, you can you could just shut that warning off. Or if you're like like you and me, you you make it turn your program into a builder, you know, like it fails to build. Yeah, yeah. That'd be what I'd I'd do. There's been a lot of work recently on the NPM story. That was that was going on like way back like a year ago. Antonio Montiero did a lot of this too. So essentially I, I the way I look at it, so I'm not a JavaScript developer, so I'm not familiar with any of this like webpack and npm and all the you know, I came from a Java background, so I don't, I've never had to deal with any of these, the JavaScript ecosystem tooling things. But what I think is going on is that the Clojure compiler people are starting to embrace some of the stuff that's in the ecosystem. So they're building in support for, you know, consuming uh, common JS stuff. This is, you know, this is nothing new. It's been going on for years now, but they're like adding more and more stuff to it. And it got to a point where Clojure itself has some support for basically building stuff from NPM. And, and basically the compiler, uh, the script compiler has been hooked into that stuff. 
So if you if you use it, it will work, but it's still very beta and still rough around the edges. Like it's very easy to find a JavaScript library that's in NPM that will cause things to fail to build. And a lot of times if you dig into it, there's there's something wrong that we're doing in the Clojure script compiler. And and other times it's like Google Clojure stuff is wrong. Or or I wouldn't say wrong. It's almost like once you go down this path, you're you're trying to consume things that are almost not well defined. There's just different patterns of how you build JavaScript modules. And so it's it's like a never ending battle to get the stuff right. So that I think that the way to summarize that stuff is now that Closure Script has been hooked into this Google Closure way of doing it, every time we update to a new version of the Closure compiler, things get better on their own. They're, they're always like fixing little little quirks here and there with the way Closure consumes various JavaScripts out there. Nice. Yeah. Um, and th- that was one of the things that you worked on in your Closures Together work, I think. Yep. Yep. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that area? That's now finished a little while ago, but... Yeah, so um, so in general, the whole Closures Together thing, I think, is great. I mean, it's there's so much stuff that is done in open source, and I think it, it's this Closures Together can help encourage more people to contribute. And I think it's just the right thing to do. I mean, uh, people are very busy, you know, <laughs> Actually, paying them to do this stuff is is great. Uh, one one thing that I kind of so I I did I did one of these funding rounds or whatever you call it, and each one is three months long. And one thing I didn't realize, and and now I'll say this after having gone through that, it felt kind of long to me. Yeah. When you think about like, uh, what are you going to do during this three months? I, I easily found up stuff to fill up that time, right? But what I what I kind of wonder is, are there perhaps people out there who might be interested in contributing to something that's open source, but they don't have like this grand three month project planned out. Right. And to be honest, I didn't either. I just, you know, I kind of feel like, man, if there was some way to fund smaller projects that might get more people involved, but then at the same time, it's like much more overhead, right. To administer all that. Right. Cause then you have like miniature funding rounds. And yeah, that that's always been, been the trade off or the challenge for us is uh, dealing with the overhead of, getting the payments done and the contracts and the grant reports and all of the things behind the scenes that we need to do because we're part of a non-profit uh, that most of those are sort of a fairly constant factor whether or not we, you know, we funded someone for one month or, or six months. But but yeah, I, I do agree that you know we've had people say they, they want to do shorter amounts of time or smaller projects where they, they wouldn't want to take like a full full grant but they might want a half grant to just do a little bit of stuff so yeah definitely definitely looking into that um and it's kind of just dealing with the overhead and and maybe once once we get a little bit bigger we'll have more resources to to manage that overhead yeah that's true i mean one thing i would also like to see happen and I, i have no insight or clue but i would imagine that it would be great if more companies contributed more money right (laughs) so that we could have like because currently we have like two concurrent things going on. Um, it would be nice if there were like four concurrent things going on or, or you know, six. Yeah. Uh, that would be more overhead. But then maybe if you get enough money, then you have funding to pay for the administration as well. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's <sighs> that, that, that's that's right. Yeah. But also um, being able to pay these projects um, more because currently we've been paying $1,800 US a month, which is, you know, that's that's a lot of money. But also for the amount of time that people are putting in you know that that hourly rate probably doesn't compare to you know your your day job. So being able to being able to match what people are 
uh, you know, being paid elsewhere would, would also be quite helpful. That, that's true. Like, a, so since I freelance, I could, I could then consider saying, Hey, I'll stop my day job and just do this. You know, I'll do a funding round and yeah, yeah. pay for my family's food and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not enough with just 1800 bucks a month. Whatever. No, not, not in most places, I guess. But that could be solved. If like, I think I, I'm, I'm feeling like there's a decent number of companies out there who are making money. <laughs> they just contribute more. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be a way to solve that it. That would definitely be a great way to solve it. Uh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I did just want to mention uh, a couple of the com- companies that are members and are, you know, are sponsoring it. Juxt is is a consulting company in the UK that have been you know, really generous. They're a filter member and they do closure and closure script consulting. So if you're you know, in the market for that, talk to them. There's also uh, Medicine, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, who are a Finnish closure consulting company. Yeah, so, uh, and also, you know, big thanks to all of the other members of Closurist together um, for, you know, for funding everyone's work. Yeah. So if you're a developer out there working in one of these companies that's not paying, go talk to your boss. (laughs) (laughs) Say, hey, have them chip in. Because they may not even be aware. Yeah. yeah. One other thing that we've uh, just recently done is hired a admin assistant to to take care of uh, some of these contracts and things, which is going to be going to be a big help because it means it frees up my time to go and talk to these companies and work on the some of the other uh, goals where previously I was spending the majority of the time just sort of keeping it running, but not able to, to focus on growing it. So, yeah, that that'll be that'll be really good too. So uh, something that has sort of been a, it's been a long time coming, but I think surprised a lot of people when it came was uh, the Graal Java, what do you, you call it, Graal compiler? Graal. Yeah, I don't know uh, the right way to put that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of things. Uh, but Graal has sort of been, you know, for, for a long time, people have been asking for, in the closure community, have been asking for, you know, ahead of time, you know, static binaries for, for closure and it's never kind of really been that much of a focus but now with Graal that's uh, suddenly within reach so I know you've been looking a lot at Graal and JS. so do you want to talk talk a little bit about that yeah so the um so with the um idea of static ahead of time binaries once that happened I immediately tried to compile closure script CLJS jar using their native image capability and I think my box ran for like 12 hours before it ultimately died <laughs> so so that's still an unattainable goal, but I would like to see that would be awesome because then you might have a closure script compiler that's really fast, right? Because <laughs> it's just native. What one thing I did do that's more attainable is in master and closure script now, there's a new REPL. With the CLJS main, when you start up uh, REPLs, you can pass minus RE node or RE NASHORN or browser. Um, so there's there's a new one called GraalJS. And it's it's basically like NASHORN, NASHORN. But what it does is um, it uses the new Grawl stuff. You have to actually have the Grawl-based uh, JDK downloaded, and, and you have to be using it uh, for this to work. But if you, if you do that, then what you get is a, basically a Java-based closure script REPL. That's just like NASHORN works today. But it also has Polyglot built into it. So you can, from this is kind of cool, from your closure script, you can call into Ruby or Python or R basically using the, the polyglot capability that Graal gives you. And another cool thing is it's, it's actually a lot faster. The, the, Graal, the Graal JS VM is a brand new JavaScript VM. It replaces Nashorn. It's, you know, it's completely new and it's, it's almost as fast as Node. Like it's like within 1.6 of Node's speed. 
it, you know, it's, it's turning into like a competitive VM. Like I hope Oracle keeps dumping money into it because that would be nice if you had like a really fast uh, JavaScript VM that you can run on your desktop. So, so that's what you'll see in the, in the next version of ClojureScript. Um, if you want to try this instead of minus re node, if you're used to using uh, CLGS main, you can pass minus re graal.js and you'll then be in a graal uh, based ClojureScript rebel. And the only way you can really tell, I think, is that you can now do polyglot things. So what, what does that look like? What, what would you have to type to, to do that? Oh, um, there's a, yeah, I can't remember the specific, it's like JS dash polyglot. And you end up passing like little string snippets of text code from other languages. Right. Little bits of Python that you feed to it. Yeah. And it goes and it calls it and, and you get your answer back. That's really cool. So one thing I noticed when I was looking through the, the commits to Clojure recently is that it looks like you're now committing directly to master for, for ClojureScript. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I would say that, that David has, um, he, he's given me that capability to, to really just help him like from a clerical sense, like it's a lot of work for him to like vet patches and then go and apply them. And, you know, so he, he's basically allowed me to, to do that as well. So, so it's kind of nice for him. He can, he can now look at a patch and say, yeah, this looks good to go. And then he can pass it off to me and I can actually take care of the mechanical aspects of, of applying stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's largely, so, so yeah, I, I do have quote commit rights, but I, it's mostly just to help him. Sure. You're not, you're not going off on a bender. Uh, and, one of the things that you need to be aware of when you're working with ClojureScript is that you're targeting many different VMs at the same time. And I can imagine some things that might be good for one VM are not so good for another VM. Um, so how do you kind of balance that and, and work with that? Yeah, so this, this happens all the time. Like let's say you're working on a potential performance enhancement to a, to a core function in the core library. Um, you want to see what it does on all the different VMs. And then my Clojure script has that set up for its um, testing. Basically, if you install all these various VMs on your dev computer and, and set up all the paths to them, and there's some stuff on the, on the Clojure script site on how to do this, then it'll basically run your code that you're benchmarking against all these VMs. And you can see how long it takes to, to run on all of them. So, so essentially what you end up doing is you write some, you know, you, you have some bit of code that, that behaves in a certain way and you test it prior to your patch. And then you you know, apply your patch and then retest with with that. And, and you see how much it speeds up on all these VMs. And if you're lucky, it's always faster on all of them, but sometimes it might slow down on one or two. And then it's just a call, like, did it slow down too much on one or two? You know, a lot of times it will, your speedups will help the slower VMs. And and the ones that are already really fast might be a little bit sensitive. So something slowing down. Make a long story short, that's, that's about the only way to do it really is to run your stuff on all these VMs. And to be honest, you can't like second guess stuff. It is so non-intuitive how stuff's going to behave. You just have to like run it through advanced, let closure do its thing, see what the ultimate result is, and see um, empirically whether or not your code is faster or not. Right. So even even after all of this work you're doing, I guess, would you have an intuition of of what the change would be, or sometimes not even that? Uh, I, I feel like I might be like halfway right. There there are so many optimizations that I've tried that that failed to make anything faster. So a lot of the stuff that you see me doing, that's only half of what I'm doing. <laughs> there's, there's, another, there's another half that you never see that, that are failures, <laughs> abject failures. Uh, no, nah, it's not that much. But, but to answer your question, yeah, I, I'm not really good at predicting what it'll do. And to be honest, a lot of times you think that you're like, ah, oh, I have this clever idea that'll make something faster. Nah, it doesn't. <laughs> because something is going on somewhere. And so the only way is to try it. 
So what, what do you kind of see future directions, features for, for ClojureScript? Yeah, so I'm, I'm always kind of wondering the same question myself. And it, sometimes to me, it feels like, you know, we're just winging it, you know, like, but to be honest, like if you say like, what is the big theme? Like wh- what, are, what, is, what does the future hold for ClojureScript? A lot of it, um, so the language is solid now, right? The, the core language, but there's, there's always opportunities to try to make the core language or the core compiler faster. So that it still does the correct things, but just does them faster. But then the the bigger area is how ClojureScript interacts with the whole ecosystem outside of that. You know how it interacts with NPM, that rather less well defined edge of how it interacts with the world. And there's, I think, a lot of work that could be done there. And I think if you're if you if you come from like a JavaScript background and you happen to know a lot about that stuff, you might want to get involved in helping with the ClojureScript stuff because. There, like I said, I, I don't have a background in that stuff. I'm, I'm like new to all this NPM stuff. If you have some innate knowledge of how Webpack and Grunt and all these other weird things are, you, you could actually help a lot more than you might think with making ClojureScript interact with these things. Because it's really just building tooling around having you know, ClojureScript do the right thing when it's, uh, when it's working with these things. I think that's where like Thomas Heller and, and Bruce Hellman, they, they both are really more on the JavaScript side of things. And I, I see them doing awesome stuff. So if you if you have like a JavaScript background and you you know how the ecosystem works, then you could contribute a lot. I would suggest trying trying to help out. You know, yeah, that'd be great. So is there any anyone uh, you'd like to thank or mention? So so there's this other podcast that I've been on that I would mention. Uh, there's the Apropos podcast. I would say that the main thing about that podcast is if you are if you're new and you're learning closure for the first time. I remember going to like local closure meetups and I learned so much. We would sit down and just solve problems at the REPL together. And, and for me, at least, my ability to learn stuff was highly accelerated in that kind of environment. There's so many things that I still understand today that I remember learning there in those meetups. So this podcast is kind of like that where um, we just sit down and we solve problems at the REPL. Half the podcast is a lot of times talking about news, but the other half is solving stuff at the REPL and we flail and, you know, and try to, try to solve things. And it's just, it shows you that no one's an expert at this stuff. We're all like learning it and all trying to, all trying to understand it. So if you're, if you're learning closure and you're, you're like struggling with the concepts and how to, you know, how to build stuff, I think you might enjoy that podcast just from the, the learning aspect of it. If you already know closure, yeah, you probably won't get much out of it. Or maybe you, I don't know, but that's, I think it's largely beneficial to people who are new. Nice. And also I would say like, if, like I said before, um, I would plug closures together. <laughs> If you if you're a developer and you haven't you know talked to your boss yet about de- contributing, do that because it it will directly help all the tools that you're using and all you know this entire ecosystem. Make sure that your company's on the list of people who are contributing. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So, Mike, you're a consultant yourself. That's your primary business. Um, so, how how can people find you and and hire you if they want to hire you to, to to do work for them? I don't know. You just find me on Twitter or whatever you know. <laughs> I don't know how people find me just the way you normally do. So my website is fikesfarm.com. That's probably the most direct answer to your question. So if you, and my blog is blog at fikesfarm. I don't remember. I think it's blog.fikesfarm.com. Uh, that's, that's my, um, my little company. Great. But otherwise, yeah, just find me on the interwebs or whatever. <laughs> I'm on GitHub. I'm on Twitter, just like everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I'm on Slack. <laughs> so in the last podcast, we had uh, Daniel Higginbottom uh, talking and he mentioned uh, the unit of productivity that they used to measure was a micronolan because if you can be if you can achieve one micronolan of productivity you're you're doing pretty well. 
Um, and, and I think uh, a micro fikes is probably also a, a similar a similar measure of pro- productivity. Oh, thank you. You seem to be doing uh, a lot of different things and <laughs> yeah, achieving a lot of uh, improvements to closure scripts. So yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Um, we, we're always really excited to see what's coming down the pipe with closure script. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And like I said, like if you, if you like this stuff and you're so compelled, jump in the fray and ha- help contribute yourself. I mean, it's, it's actually um, a lot, you know, it is a compiler, so that might seem scary, but it's actually written in closure. So it's all very easy to read, pretty straightforward. So if you, if you feel like uh, contributing, jump in and have fun. I think it's easier than you might imagine. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing the announcements of the next release, which is going to include some of these new features you've been talking about. Um, and yeah, thanks for your time. All right, Daniel. Thank you.